0: I guess I'm halfway content with the idea that somehow I've become an economist, but I was never trained in that.
1: This is Nobel Prize Conversations. You just heard 2020 Economic Sciences Laureate, Robert B. Wilson.
0: I was uh, nearly 50 years old before I decided that, well, I guess I am an economist.
1: Robert Wilson, the Adams Distinguished Professor of Management Emeritus at Stanford University, was awarded the Prize in Economic Sciences for improvements to auction theory and inventions of new auction formats. He shared the prize with his former student, Paul Milgram. Nobel Prize Conversations is produced with the support of our Nobel international partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. Your host is Adam Smith. Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. The story of how Wilson and Milgram found out about their prize is quite unique. So let's start there, with the phone call that woke Robert Wilson up on the 12th of October 2020.
0: (laughs) Okay, so, um, well, we got a call... I think it was like one forty in the morning. Anyway, you know, was a voice I didn't recognize, and I decided it was a political advertisement before the election. And so I just hung it up, turned the phone off, and went back to bed. So then the Nobel Committee, or the Swedish Academy, called my wife's cell phone. It's good they had a backup. Because I had sort of dreaded this, I thought it would ruin my life if it happened, because it would just be a bunch of turmoil and uh, intrusions and... Uh, I couldn't do my research and get in in the way of uh, all kinds of things. So Torsten Pearson assured me that it was a valid call because, you know, we had met before. (laughs) And so he was saying, this is Torsten, and uh, I just wanted you to know that this this is the real thing. And did I accept the prize? So I said yes to that. There was a moment of hesitation. <laughs> oh,
2: that, that's interesting. Was
0: yeah? That's How long
2: a, was that moment?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. It was a millisecond. But you know, you do you have the option to say, "Well, no, I'd rather do without this." But then, at the end of this little, let's see. I think they said for you know details like the announcement will be made at noon in Stockholm. Congratulations, things like that. And then he said, by the way, we do have a special need. There was this problem that they couldn't reach Paul either. (laughs) And they didn't have a backup for his wife because his wife, Ava, was in Stockholm at the time. So um, they knew that I lived across the street. So might I go over and wake up Paul?
1: Adam Smith has the honor of speaking to each brand new laureate for an interview on the morning of the announcement. Here's how their neighbour, a freshly awakened Paul Milgram, described the experience.
0: My doorbell rang and Bob Wilson, who uh, was the co-winner, I understand, was uh, was knocking at my front door because uh, nobody was able to reach me. So uh, <laughs> I woke me up to, uh, 20 minutes ago or so.
2: I think that might be a first, that one laureate comes knocking at the other laureate's door. <laughs>
0: That was the beginning of this thing that became viral on the web because I put on some clothes, Mary was still in her robe, and we walked across the street. And uh, it turns out that their doorbell, which has uh, all of this capability, it has a camera and a microphone. And as you approach the house, they're actually taking a film of the approach and recording it and so on. So as I approached, they are informing Eva back in Stockholm by uh, some sort of text or something. there's a person approaching your house here at uh, t- you know two in the morning. And so Eva is trying to talk to us through the doorbell. The doorbell has a little microphone and, and a speaker, but we couldn't quite understand her, so it just sounded kind of like noise. So then we, we you know we knocked on the door and, and I, so and, and uh, we woke up Paul. Well, Eva was following this whole thing because they are providing a real-time connection to her in Stockholm as we're approaching the door knocking on the door. And so all this time, she couldn't get our attention. So anyway, we woke up, waked up Paul and uh, had a little celebration there at the door. So Eva, unbeknownst to us, within minutes, I think, had sent a copy of that to the... To, the, to some media outlet in Stockholm, and by in, within hours, it was all over the web. Paul, uh-huh. it's, it's Bob Wilson. Yeah. You, you won the Nobel, uh-huh. You've won the Nobel Prize, and so they're trying to reach you, but they cannot. They don't seem to have a number for you. We gave them your cell phone number.
2: Yeah, I yeah. have. Wow. Do you recall what Paul said first when you told him the news? that? Well, so apparently he was quite confused. He was actually relating
0: this to me the other day that when he approached, when he came to the door and I had said, Paul, you've won a Nobel Prize. Well, he was quite ill at ease because he wasn't sure whether I was included or not. And so he, if I had, was not included, he wanted to think through how he could... I don't know, soothe my feelings or something like that. But then, of course, we clarified that in fact this is a joy to ward. We'll be sharing this and uh,
2: so on. So relief on his side, he could just celebrate with gay abandon with you.
0: Well, I had the sense—I've always had the sense that I was sort of riding on his coattails. So, for me, it was uh, you know nice to be included. But uh, uh, I've always considered him to be the
2: intellectual leader of this thing, even though I was his teacher a very humble and generous thing to say um it's uh because yeah i mean he, of, as as everyone knows he was your third graduate student to be awarded the nobel prize
0: well yeah so they're they're at the door i think i mentioned something about my trifecta this uh <laughs> the third of my <laughs> former students receiving a nobel prize so this this is quite a uh thing to celebrate in itself
1: Robert Wilson and Paul Milgram are not only neighbours and fellow Nobel laureates, they're also both affiliated with Stanford University. After some years at Harvard University and a brief stint at UCLA, Wilson joined the faculty at Stanford in 1964. Now a professor emeritus at the school, his career there has spanned almost 60 years.
2: There must be something wonderfully special about that environment. Oh, I love
0: Stanford and Palo Alto and the dark community here. Before I came here, I, was at, I studied at Harvard in rather miserable circumstances. And I was assistant professor at UCLA and housing was difficult. There were no public facilities for kids and the smog was terrible. I came up to Palo Alto and I thought I'd landed in Eden. It was just uh, paradise. And I've felt that way ever since. And Stanford's always been very good to me. It supported my research, gave me every encouragement. Um, I love living on the campus. You know, the university here has some of its land devoted to uh, on-campus housing for faculty, which is why, of course, Paul's Across the Street is an accident that the house he bought happens to be across the street. But I could lease land from the university and build a house, clear back in as an assistant professor in 19, late 1960s. It's not just that it's a special place in the community and in the natural environment around it. We have an endless set of parks nearby. I mean, Mary and I go hiking a lot and we have a, a variety, I don't know, 50 different parks within a half hour's drive that we enjoy. And we have good friends and everything, but also within the university, that the university has been so supportive and encouraging.
2: And so I really like it. I'm very, very
0: happy that I'm here and and that I've stayed
2: here. It does sound like you've got a slice of paradise there. And obviously nobody's been able to tempt you away all these years, all these decades.
0: I've had offers like of the East Coast and so on.
2: And and I took some seriously, but after a while I always say, No. (laughs) It's a different environment from the one you grew up in. You grew up in the Midwest, didn't you, in, in farming country? Uh, yes. Well, for the biography that I prepared,
0: the that's on the Nobel website or will be in April. Will be. Yeah, not there yet. Well, I detail some of that because I had a such a happy childhood after we had some difficulties during the depression and the early years of the war. But then I lived in this little town in Nebraska, right in the in the uh, prairie state. And we were, I don't know, a half mile from the edge of town in this little little teeny town, 5,000 people. There's cr- creeks nearby and forests. And so my brother, my brother's only one year younger, 13 months, and we were sort of like twins. We just uh, rode our bikes anywhere we wanted, did whatever we wanted. And, and my parents were completely... Uh, lax about everything. They just said, you know, we said goodbye, mom. We're going, and we're gone. And we spend the whole day having fun, doing whatever we wanted, mostly outdoors. I mean, we were, uh, well, we did a lot of camping and hunting. I was quite a hunter, you yeah. know. I was very into guns and all of that stuff. But these were rifles and shotguns for my hunting.
2: You're a theorist. Do you think that that it's important to your theorizing to be able to kind of switch off and just let your mind relax?
0: Yes, (laughs) although my uh, tendency is to, uh, when my mind is very, very relaxed, is then wake up in the morning at like 5 a.m. and start thinking through a piece of theory because it's so clear, my mind is so clear and when everything's quiet and uh, there, there's no, uh, no, no impending tasks to do or anything like that. It's just an empty period. And so all of my, not just my best work, but my co-author that I work with a lot, Hari Govindan, who's at the University of Rochester. So uh, I even worry about him because when he's lost in thought, Driving his car, he's a danger. <laughs> and when he's, it's okay when he's lost in thought in the shower or in the middle of the night. His brain seems to solve problems in the in the middle of the night. Actually, <laughs> quite independent of his uh, of of his sort of uh, of his ego. There's this part of his brain solving problems. But I do worry about him because he gets lost in thought. <laughs>
2: Are you aware of your own brain working away sort of independently of you and then suddenly producing ideas that you are surprised by?
0: Oh, occasionally. I certainly wish it would happen more. That would be wonderful <laughs> to have more uh, marvellous ideas pop out of my brain. But most of the time, my brain is just struggling. Can't seem to find a solution. And I feel frustrated. And But always trying, always trying.
2: Ever frustrated enough to drop a question or do you always just keep going? Well, I've had uh, a long
0: history of failed attempts. So I think by my count, there were three previous times where I spent an entire year on a problem. And it was only by force of will that I stopped myself from continuing and said, "Okay, I haven't done it. I don't know what the answer is. I have to quit. And then I would change my focus, Uh, you know, something would come up like, I don't know, teaching or whatever that was, uh, it became a, became a priority. But since I retired, I have one particular topic that stayed with me now for uh, nine years. Now, my co-author, Hari, reminds me that we had an earlier problem that we worked on for 10 years and then solved it. So he doesn't want me to give up yet on this one. But on this one, I've worked on it for nine years. So (laughs) one more year, and then I'm going to quit. The the privilege of being retired is that you could just hang on to a problem forever.
2: Well, not one more year, and then you're going to quit. One more year, and then you're going to solve it, right? (laughs) Well, of course, I think that might be true. (laughs) I think it's likely (laughs) true. Uh,
0: It's what keeps me going. I actually feel that I'm... just an
2: epsilon away, an iota from solving
0: it.
2: How can you not get tremendously frustrated being that close to solving something and yet it goes on and on, it, it, it continues? Um, how do you deal with that? Because I suppose for most people, nine years, I mean, maybe you haven't been an epsilon away from solving it for nine years, but nine years is too long. So what is it about you that allows you to keep going? Well, I think this of the one I'm working on right now is a very important question. I think of
0: it as uh, you know, relevant for a huge range of applications if I only were clarified. So, so it deals with, this, uh, with the problem of cooperation in an extended interaction between people, like a prisoner's dilemma kind of situation. It's uh, known that cooperation in such a game, if extended game, need not be the only outcome in an equilibrium sense. You know, optimal behavior by each party in a selfish way, but when they have bounded memory or bounded computational abilities or something like that, then mysteriously we get cooperation as the unique prediction. So I don't understand why that would be the case. I say we get it only from computational experience. So I've done I've solved these games for very. Uh, you know, say say if we're thinking about a model with a bounded memory, where people can only remember the last, you know, 10 moves, for example. I can solve those on my computer. And uniquely, the only outcome, the equilibrium outcome, involves cooperation. Well, so this is part of a much larger agenda. There's a very famous biologist, E.O. Wilson. It happens to be the same name, but that's an excellent. Yeah. He wrote Consilience, didn't he? That's right. Yes, he did, and Sociobiology. And he's a scholar in his early years of the social insects, of uh, bees and ants and termites and so on. And he has this hypothesis, which is, I think, apparently shared by many uh, evolutionary biologists. Within a species, their evolution tends towards cooperation. So intra-species cooperation, of course, you know, across species there can be competition and so on. But within a species, he, they hypothesize the evolution, evolutionary pressure is towards cooperation. So I think of this as fitting into even evolutionary biology, but it fits into political science and economics and so many places. So. It's such a broad hypothesis that if I could just solve this very special, special case, then I would feel that, uh, you know, I've done something that contributes to this much broader problem area, this sort of, have a perspective on a a whole class of problems that involve cooperation or
2: competition, some sort of interaction over time. Mm. How absolutely fascinating. So is that an example of the way that you pick problems, that you pick problems that are small enough to be tractable, but have some much, much greater implication? Is that a kind of rule you apply?
0: Yes, actually, no, I don't think I haven't had that rule explicit during my career. But it, actually, that's what happened every time. My, you know, this award was about auctions. But in fact, that's how I got into auctions was that I think of auctions as a tractable special case of a market mechanism and uh, all each of the other pieces of my work i felt like i had a sort of an interest in a broader uh theoretical kind of problem but my entree into that problem was to work on a specific tractable example
1: The groundbreaking concepts that Wilson and Milgram developed from their discoveries and their design of new auction formats are often used in the real world. One famous application is their use by governments to allocate radio frequencies to telecommunications operators. They also help bidders avoid the winner's curse, the phenomenon where bidders will often end up paying more than the object is worth in order to win, and so it's the largest overestimation of the value of the item for sale that ends up winning the auction.
2: I suppose you must constantly get asked for advice by your students and others for how should they pick problems. It sounds that that's a very sensible way to go ahead, but presumably it's quite difficult to pick the right tractable problem.
0: And yeah, I'm sure that's true. I, I've certainly urged my students to be motivated by a practical problem. It's not just that to find the right tractable problem, but that it should be motivated by a practical problem. A context or problem or decision-making process of some kind. And so for me, it was always so valuable to have consulting experiences or, you know, involvement with practical things, because then that introduced me to, uh, you know, either a phenomenon or some decision-making problem or or some para- seeming paradox or whatever, the key that would draw my interest, and that I would try to develop a theoretical analysis of of that aspect, so the way I got involved in uh, this early work on the winner's curse aspect in auctions was a sort of practical involvement with oil lease bidding, you know, by oil companies. And it's been true all along, even the work on the spectrum auctions that as uh, uh, cited in the award. Paul and I were involved with a local telephone company that was bidding for spectrum licenses and fortunately we had the opportunity offered by the FCC that the companies that would be bidding could -submit, submit proposals for how to design the auction. In fact whether it should be done as an auction at all and also if so how it would be done as an auction. So that gave us the opportunity here we are involved in this very practical context but then it led us to make a proposal about how to design that auction which turned out to be very successful, but it also introduced a whole different set of ideas into economics, ideas that tend to be called now market design. Each of those, you started with some sort of very specific thing, and then it kind of grows and spreads. It sort of moves forward into the practical world instead of becoming more and more abstract and, in my view, kind of meaningless if it becomes just uh, a theoretical curiosity. I, I'm much more interested in, in these ideas that have ramifications for practical affairs.
2: It's very interesting to hear that you always have this sort of f- foot in reality when you're thinking about the theoretical problems that you're trying to solve. What is it that drives your curiosity while you're coming along with the solution? Is it, is it basically maths that you're playing with or is it, are you still thinking practically while you're trying to solve them?
0: Ah oh, well, wow. so I mean the the one the problems that's occupying me right now is mostly a mathematical problem. But certainly, in the work that's cited in the award, this work on auctions that I did back in the '60s and '70s, that was re- really drawn by the practical considerations because I was trying to capture the phenomena that the, that was occurring that where these firms did not. Acknowledge or did not realize the adverse selection they faced. The firm that sort of overestimates the value of a track tends to be the one who wins. And this was something they found very difficult to take account of in their decision processes. So that was so driven by these practical things because at that time, first I was advising the Department of Interior here in the United States on uh, how to organize these auctions and giving them predictive models of outcomes. But then later I was advising these oil companies directly and and trying to create framework for their thinking and algorithms for coming up with bids and so on. So in those cases they're really the practical aspect was more important and more difficult than some theoretical aspect or mathematical aspect
2: in some ways you're bringing order to a what must essentially be a kind of battle people are out there trying to get ahead of the of the competition they're trying to you know they're trying to make money and it's very competitive and you're trying to create a scenario where people can be super competitive but also play fair and get the best result for everybody it's funny you're in a way you're a bit of a peacemaker in doing what you
0: do well, we certainly think of uh, market design as a way of uh, reconciling competing interests, uh, realize gains from trade that you know, makes both parties better off. Most people who, who've gotten involved in economics, they think of it really as a, a way of organizing what would otherwise be, uh, I don't know, a slash and burn kind of competition <laughs> among, uh, among firms. That it's actually a way of reaching a cooperative outcome. So if you find a way to realize the gains from trade among the parties, then they're both better off. Now, you could say, well, there's a problem of how to allocate those gains. Uh, why do some people get very rich and others don't? And so on, You could. there are distributional consequences. I don't think I've spent a lot of time on working on distributional consequences. It's more like I first want to find procedures and market designs that promote the biggest pie, make sure that the, the the greatest possibility for realizing gains from trade without paying a lot of attention to how it gets distributed. So I've left that more to other people to to deal with, like, because right now I'm just sort of trying to, to make uh, the pie as big as possible.
2: In a way, there needs to be another word than auctions, because for most people, an auction is a purely kind of a winner-takes-all scenario. They're used to auctions at, in an eBay sense or something. You either win or you don't win, and that's it. And the sort of auctions that you are involved in are a very different affair. Let me say while I'm talking about that, the intention of the
0: auction in the Spectrum Design case, the intention is to promote efficiency, to get the licenses assigned to the firms that can make best use of them, where best use is in, defined in terms of you know, build out and serving customers and all that, there's sort of a, a strong connection that if you have the compete, the ones that think they have the best technology or the, can best implement the use of the spectrum, they're the ones that will see the most value in a license and bid the most and therefore win the license. So some people would think that, well, that's a sort of a tenuous connection. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's true. But by and large, the fact that they are uh, competing for these licenses is also a way of promoting an efficient allocation of the licenses among the potential uh, recipients. I noticed in the Nobel citation, they actually emphasize this other aspect, which I was Found admirable that actually it's an efficient way for the government to raise money because if you raise money by taxation, it distorts incentives. You know, people say, "Oh well, at the margin, I have to, you know, half of my income gas to go to government taxation," that affects uh, your you know, people's incentives. So actually, the raising funds for the government by this means, by an auction, is less distorting of incentives than uh, taxation would be. Usually in discussions of these things, that sort of aspect is, is important and was an important factor in the design of the spectrum auctions as to why we thought that efficiency was promoted by a competitive process. But that seems to have become now more widely recognised.
2: I want to just go back to thinking about um, that your, your transition from... Nebraska to Harvard. What was it like going from your free and easy life cycling around uh, uh, um, Nebraska to suddenly finding yourself as a student at Harvard?
0: Well it was a deep shock so so there was a culture shock. Uh, I had been an exchange student in Germany between my uh, junior and senior year in high school so I was not a complete neophyte. I had actually been to you know, across the Atlantic, I'd been in in Germany and, and Italy and so on. Uh, it's not that I was a total, a total rube, but I went to Harvard, and there it was such a different world. First of all, so many of the my fellow students went to, you know, what we call prep schools in the United States, these pre- preparatory schools, very elite, they come from rich families, they have all of this uh, advantage, so to speak, in starting off. And then, um, you know, the scholarly kinds of topics were sudden a sudden jolt because at a, these little towns in Nebraska, English literature and philosophy and history and so on were not really on their minds. It's, you understand most of the students be, uh, either work went to uh, the app- apprentice like in an auto shop or they. I worked on a farm so we had we have here like a 4H program which is for young people to get involved in agriculture so, so I get to Harvard and uh, i i i was i had a deep cultural shock on the other hand i worked very very hard so i actually finished with uh, the my freshman year in a you know with a high grade point average i you right. know they, I was in class mm-hmm. one as they called, so uh I was very proud of myself, so I remember that there was in my chemistry course that first uh semester uh we were seated alphabetically, so the guy next to me was named wilcox and uh at the midterm exam, I saw that he got a like an A and I got like a almost an F, I mean, a a very low grade. Uh, But I also saw when we picked up the finals that I had an A and he had a C. (laughs) So I I felt that that, by just hard work, I could overcome the disadvantage of not having gone to preparatory schools and having all of that familiarity with uh, uh, culture
2: and science and history seems to have worked but was the hard work consequence of feeling excluded from everything else or just innate determination to do well whatever was it a way of um escaping from the kind of difficulties of being in a newer situation well i certainly wasn't escaping i certainly thought that
0: i think it was the first alternative i forget how you listed it just <laughs> now but the one uh, in innate desire that Okay, I'm severely challenged, I'm just going to work harder, and I'm going to to excel at this. I'm going to try very, very hard. I really had this belief that uh, even though I had come from a a background that didn't prepare me, that still I was capable of doing well. I, I never had, I guess, any doubt, but I did meander through Harvard in a very... I was majoring in engineering, and then in physics, and then in mathematics, and then philosophy, and I kept changing what I was doing, and um, I really drifted around. So I didn't take good advantage of my experience there. My undergraduate studies were really uh, not well focused. If I would had a different kind of preparation, I would have gotten much more out of that education, because it was a first-rate educational opportunity. It's just I didn't always take uh, full advantage of it.
2: When did you first, do you think, feel at home with one discipline? I suppose the discipline of business, maths as applies to business.
0: I guess I'm halfway content with the idea that somehow I've become an economist, but I was never trained in that. And it wasn't until sometime in the 1980s I began to feel like that. So what age was I? I was... uh, you know, nearly 50 years old before I decided that. Well, I guess I am an economist. Of course, there was an experience that was uh, emphasized that because we I had been in a group that we uh, we called it decision sciences, but it was also more like operations research or or operations management. David Kreps and I are very close and, and we have two other colleagues, Farouk Gol and Mahdi, who are with us, who are now called economists. But at that time, we were all in this little group and they, the rest of the group expelled us. <laughs> <They> said <laughs> We had this meeting in which they said, you guys are just like economists, get out of here, we don't <laughs> want this. <laughs> and so... Uh, we were expelled, and so then we went and joined the economics group in the school. Our school doesn't have a department. It's not departmentalized, so we don't have an economics department. We just have a a grouping, and you can do that. You can just move among the groups. And so we uh, changed our allegiance to the economics group.
2: So finally at home. (laughs) Um, This has been a strange year to be a Nobel Laureate. You've been restricted to being in Palo Alto, no celebrations, no festivities in Stockholm this year. How was it being a a Nobel Laureate awarded on home turf? (laughs) I
0: had a good time. (laughs) See, I had the advantage that four years ago, I went to Stockholm for the uh, award ceremony when Big Tomström won the Nobel Prize.
1: As mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, two of Wilson's former students had already been awarded the Economics Prize before Wilson and Milgram received it last year. First was the American Alvin Roth, who was awarded in 2012. And then in 2016, Finnish economist Bengt Holmström received the prize for his contributions to contract theory. And so it was in 2016 that Holmström invited Robert Wilson to join him at the prize ceremony in Stockholm.
0: And so he had arranged these very lovely accommodations for us. We stayed in the Grand Hotel, you know, looking across the harbor to the King's Palace and all that, and these lovely accommodations, and we had such a fun time for a week. And we went to the, to the banquet. The banquet was enormous, great fun. We just had a lovely time at the banquet and the dance, dancing afterwards. And so in a sense... That wonderful Nobel week we'd already shared four years earlier by being with uh, Big
2: Holmström on that occasion. And as you say, in a very low-stress way, if you're not the centre of attention, you can just relax and enjoy the whole thing. Exactly, right. I guess if it all goes ahead in 2021, then uh, you'll be there in Stockholm again in a slightly less stressful way than it would be if you were the only laureates of the year, because it will be you and the next year's laureates.
0: I understand that we would if we were to come that we could then uh like attend the banquet, things like that. So so maybe we'll we'll do that. Uh I am going to a conference actually a week later that's in Stockholm. Just by accident that uh well Jurgen Weibel is a, a very prominent uh game theory economist in uh at Stockholm and he's organizing a conference so I'm going to that. <laughs> So it's kind of like, so. I guess we'll hang around, go early for the for the banquet on uh, the, on the tenth, and then uh, be there for Weibel's conference uh, a week later.
2: I guess, in fact, having been in two thousand sixteen, you got to see sides of it that you won't see as a Nobel laureate. So presumably, when you travelled from the ceremony, from the award ceremony to the banquet, you had to go in, in one of the bendy buses that, that that winds its way through the streets between the two. Yes that's true. Yes we took yes we were taking buses. That's right. It's a lovely kind of leveling piece of Swedish kind of design that you go to this incredibly grand ceremony and then to an incredibly grand banquet but in between you cram on to a bendy bus and stand there with everybody
0: else. I was so impressed that the that the award ceremony is a really high point apparently of Swedish society. It seemed like all of Sweden was there or wanted to be there. <laughs> I did have a problem at the banquet because I got so enthralled by my dinner companions and my wife points out I had uh, women on either side of me and across from me, okay? So I had these four women who were so enchanting that I never ate my meal and along came the waiter at a certain point and whisked
2: away the plate which had not been touched. There's no disrupting the flow of events to say, hang on a second. Oh, that's right. They've got to move on. That's right. Yeah. Happy memories and uh, happy things to come now that you're vaccinated and travelling. It's been a huge pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.
1: You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen, and I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This episode is from season two of the show. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarven, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.